Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Gabby. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Mr. Richard Whitehead. Did you receive that short pass all well and good? I did, I think, yeah, and I'm I'm now legging it towards the opposition goal with it. Is that what you wanted? That's absolutely fantastic. And I, well, I, you know, I, I might get my sights. I might have a sure. Well, in the modern age, lots of teams don't have shots. Certainly in the first half. Sometimes they do in the second. But back in the day of the seventies, everybody had shots. They were going in from left, right, and centre. It was a different ball game. The FA Cup was a different ball game there. Yeah, and well. Welcome all to Book Corner Extra Time with Richard Whitehead, who's written this wonderful book, The Cup, a pictorial celebration of the world's greatest football tournament, which is 150 years young this year. You don't want me to sing happy birthday, you, Gabby? No, and neither am I. But we are going to go through the book. First and foremostly, okay, 150 years I'm guessing that's the why. But yeah. why the Cup and not the FA Cup? There's lots of books about um, regarding the FA Cup. But this is different. This is a pictorial book with lots of wonderful writings and stories. So, guys, it's not just pictures. It's stories as well as pictures. That's. I'm glad you said that, Gabby, because since it's been published and since I've seen it, and someone said to me last week, someone who, a well-known chap in Birmingham said to me last week, Rob Bishop, who used to be programming. Legend. Legend. Yeah. Top man. He said to me last week, you, should, you shouldn't have had pictorial in it yeah. because it gives the impression that it's just pictures when pictures are fantastic, obviously, and a lot of work went into choosing them. But, but it's sort of, 50, as you've seen, Gabby, it's 50-50 words as well. So I thought about what Rob said and I thought, yeah, that's actually, he's got a fair shout there. However, it's printed and published now, so we won't, we won't quibble about that. But I'm glad you said that it is not just lovely pictures, although, God, they are lovely. Absolutely fantastic. How long did it take you to get all the pictures in place? Because there are an awful lot of pictures. There's an awful lot of words there's over well just under 300 just over 250 uh, pages it is a coffee table book it's a book that you can pick up dip into and dip out of it isn't in any chronological order it's just full of fantastic bits and looking at the magic of the FA Cup. Now, lots of cups didn't have lids, but the FA Cup was given a lid to keep the magic in it, and you've just <laughs> let that lid off, and the magic has come out onto your pages. Wow, you're a poet. I, I actually that. am a poet, to be fair. I've written many a poet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only I could have thought of that. That's absolutely brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant, Gabby. Uh, well... I didn't answer your previous question about why the cup. I suppose why the cup, because 
that's just what we call it, isn't it? It's yes. the cup. I, you know, I remember a, a, a thing I wanted to put in the introduction, but it didn't quite work. Walking down Trinity Road on a January night in 1976, Villa, Villa v Southampton, third round replay. And Southampton were in the second division. And we'd drust, I'm a Villas fan, fan yep. people will have put that out now. Uh, We'd nearly won the game at the Dell on the Saturday and they'd equalised in the last minute. They were in the second division. OK, we were only just in our first season back in the first division. But it seemed to my 14-year-old uh, self, whatever it was, 15-year-old self, that this was a bit of a foregone conclusion. So I remember saying to my dad, expressing surprise at the length of the queues going back to get into the whole tent. Mm. And he said, he said uh, well, it's the cup. You know, and <laughs> since then, the cup has been what I've always thought of it. So I didn't really have to, you know, thinking about a title wasn't really a, an issue. And as people won't know this possibly, but you have to be careful with the FA's licensing, right. what you put on the cover. So we could not have had a picture of the FA Cup on the cover. We're fine to have pictures of people with the FA Cup on the cover, and there are two, as you've right. seen, Gabby. But you can't, that's that's a copyrighted image. So, uh, so you know, we had to be a bit clever to get around that as well. 1976, Southampton, third round replay. Uh, yeah. They did pretty well that season, didn't they, in Ooh. the FA Cup, Southampton, yeah, they having did. knocked out the Villa. Well, my dad's, one of my dad's mantras was the team that knocks the Villa out always wins the Cup. Now, uh <laughs> that must that that must have dated back a very very long time. <laughs> Hasn't been true for a while now, but uh, that used to be said, and I've read it in paper in old papers as well. So my dad didn't just make it up himself. But we didn't think when South Second Division Southampton scrambled all the time January that we'd just seen the winners. And uh, lovely circular way of bringing it back to your question, isn't it? But that's the magic of the cup. Is Second Division Southampton scramble a last minute equaliser in the third round? against the Villa and end up winning at Wembley a few months later. And I don't know if you've read the story of Bobby Stokes in the book, have you? Gabby, I yeah? haven't read the story about Bobby Stokes, but I Bobby did. Stokes, I who did. got the winner that day, was just, you know, I mean, that is one of the great stories in the book, really. Won't spoil it for anybody, everybody, but, you know, what a tragic figure. What a, what a tragic hero. I did a podcast with uh, Jimmy Mack who put the ball on for, uh, for Bobby Stokes. He also did to uh, to Mick Shannon in the first half. And Jimmy Mack says they were both equally as good as each other. Uh, the fact that that lad Shannon won a great finisher. <laughs> he didn't end up in the back of the net. <laughs> but Bobby obviously was, and it did. And playing against his former employees, Manchester United as well. And, and you're yeah. right, um, I do podcasts with uh, two of the boys, regular podcasts. Terry Curran played in the 1984 FA Cup final uh, for Everton when um, they beat Southampton. Again, Southampton. And my other podcast partner is Alan Hudson, who played in the 1970 FA Cup semi-final. Uh, against Watford when Chelsea won 5-1 and also Arsenal when they knocked out Orient uh, 3-0 at the bridge in 1978 and both of them boys say to me do you know what Gab when your name's on the cup your name is on the cup and you yes. look at so many winners 
that they've had their little bit of luck along the way. In fact, Terry's, one of Terry's first FA Cup games was against Liverpool. And Kitch had a shot that just, I think he hit either the top of the net or the bar and just went over. It, It beat Clem. And had that gone in, Liverpool would have been on the way out. They won the FA Cup in that year, of course. And yes. that is the, mu- the, the the magic and the beauty of the Cup. Yes, it is. It's so, yeah, those, as you say, I think all winners, or certainly back in the day, uh, you know, all winners have that moment. Well, and even last night, wasn't the Forest? Mm-hmm. People thought yeah. Forest maybe been about a penalty, you know. Uh, yeah, all winners along the way. You've got to have that moment where you might be on the verge of going out, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. I'm looking at page 186, uh, 1948, the stately home of football. Frederick Rinder drew up plans to increase Villa Park's capacity to 100,000. I looked at, wow. And then I looked at, in his history of Villa Park, uh, Simon English recalled, well, called Rinder an architectural alligator. When uh, And when peace returned, he was soon planning his next scheme. There was plans to have Villa Park as a 100,000 capacity. I didn't realise that. And I've actually gone and bought the book 100 Years of Villa uh, by Simon. Fantastic. I'm not a Villa fan. I'm a Birmingham City fan, but I'm a fan of Aston Villa. And I know people are going to be very, very confused. But when I look at Villa and I look at the history and there's so much of Villa in this book, so I think it's only right to start on that page and you look at the old ground. It is a fabulous ground and hosted many FA Cup semi-finals to boot. Can you imagine the queues at the train station if the capacity was 110,000? I've been, I've been in those queues of 41,000, and trust yes. me, no, I can't. It would be, it would literally be going back to Spaghetti Junction, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would really. I don't know if there ever there was that a possibility, but Rinder was, Rinder was a visionary figure, and uh, you know, very much along with George Ramsey, the. The, the the men who beat who built the villa really yeah. made it great and uh, uh, so yes it was I, I guess the people listening to this are, are mainly going to be people who like a bit of history and like a bit of nostalgia so yeah. I'm guessing they won't they'll be like me and you and think the semi final should still be at Villa Park and other places like that and not at Wembley uh, and it was it was noticeable in the coverage over the weekend that it's now become normal for people to say when people when clubs win the quarter final and they're through to Wembley yeah just saying which is true of course it's but wrong yeah. yeah ridiculous absolutely ridiculous so uh yeah Villa Park uh semi-finals at Villa Park uh obviously I didn't actually go to one as a Villa fan yeah. but, it, but it did seem a right and proper place as did other venues and you know and now the club grounds are so good aren't they that you know generally speaking who would mind a semi-final at the Etihad Stadium for instance or the Emirates or you know or Tottenham's stadium you know so uh, semi-finals are at Wembley are, are, are another thing that's helped to that the FA have done that hasn't helped the competition in my view. Absolutely I think it takes away from the day because yes. when we were kids, back in the 70s, we're looking at um, 
the BBC or ITV because they both mm. broadcast the final. It was the, uh, the the bumper cans come out. There was, I don't know how many pints were in there, but your dad and your uncles and, and everybody would congregate round a house. The FA Cup final was the greatest game in the football calendar because it was one of the only ones that was live. We didn't have live football. And, and, and I think these days it's taken... That magic a little bit is taken away by not having it as such a special day uh, at Wembley. Because I think every boy, when we played football, we'd literally get that Wembley trophy out and we'd play Wembley. And it, it was about the road to Wembley and getting to Wembley. And that road to Wembley started for the bigger clubs in the third round. For the smaller clubs, it started way back when. And to get to the semi-final was almost as big a day as the final because mm. it was your 90 minutes away from Wembley. I think they've taken that away now and I don't think it's the same. Take no. it back to the grounds and have Wembley as the, just the, the, the venue of the final. I mean, you're right, of course, about that it was one of the few games on live games. It was a fantastic day. I mean, my I said to someone last week, Gabby, my, you know, my mum, was not a football fan at all and a regular Saturday afternoon was to go shopping you know in Tamworth which is where I grew yeah. up but she didn't go on cup final afternoon yeah. uh, you know we, we all sat and watched the cup final and as I say she wasn't particularly interested in football and uh, she didn't sit there watch and watch all the build-up and neither did my dad but but as I did but you yeah. know there was there was something you know it was a it was the biggest sporting event of the year, Cup Final Day. And, you know, OK, I know the Grand National, the Boat Race, Lord's Test Match, all those other, th Wimbledon, of course, all those other things are massive events. But the Cup Final was really, really special. Oh, absolutely. And what also is special about the Cup Final, lovely little story in the book. So, guys, buy the book. Where's the best place that you can buy the book before I get into this next little point? Well, I think uh, at the moment, I've just been, funnily enough, I've just been talking to the publishers about this very thing. I think at the moment, if you have no object, uh, uh, objection to using Amazon, then that's absolutely the best place. That's how I got it, yeah. It's a good price and it's a very good price, actually. And, uh, you know, you'll get it whenever, straight away. Uh, supply to the shops takes a bit longer. So I know you don't get to browse in it, but if you look on Amazon, you can see some of the pages uh, and you get a feel for the thing as you as you did, Gabby, I'm sure. But uh, so that's the best place for now. I'm sure it'll start to appear in shops, but uh, it's only in a few shops at, um, at the moment, I think. You don't need to browse because it's an absolute winner. It's a page turner. Every page, there's a gem. And the gem that I want to start with is Abide With Me because that is the oh. FA Cup final anthem. And what a lovely story. I didn't realise the story. So briefly well, tell us that what was, that was about. That was new to me. Uh, yeah. A clergyman, written, the words were written by a clergyman in Brixham in Devon. And he was dying and he knew he was dying. Uh, and I think he wanted those words. He summoned up those words, you know, to 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 put into to give vent to how he thought about dying. Yeah. Really. Uh, and it wasn't for a few years. And I, sorry, Gabby, I don't have it in front of me, but it wasn't for a few years until the tune, until those words were 
match to the tune that we're familiar with. That came yeah. a bit later. And then it first appeared at the cup final in 1927, the famous year that, that uh, Cardiff won the cup and took it out of England for the only time, yeah. uh, which is also in the book. Uh, and so Abide With Me became part of the sacred rituals of cup final day, but it dates back a very long way. And it's uh, this clergyman in the lovely Devon fishing port of Brixham could not possibly have imagined that his words would be boomed out over Wembley. And, and they're not actually, as anyone who stood there and sung them would, would be aware, they're not actually that appropriate to the occasion. Mm. And I think in the late 50s, 1959, I think, Stanley Rouse, who was then uh, Secretary of the FA, tried to get it dropped for that very reason really? just thought it really appropriate and was supported by clergymen who agreed with him but there was an outcry uh there was an outcry because it had become so much part of the you know the mythology and the fabric of cup final day so it it came back and you know it's still there isn't it we we, we tend to get it warbled by a celebrity singer these days but uh uh, and it was nearly dropped in the early 70s as well, when the when crowds became a little more rebellious. And I think when I first started watching the cup final, I don't know about you, I don't think it was sung with any great enthusiasm then, and there would be a bit of booing for some mm -hmm. reason. I think I think it when 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 fans became a bit younger and a bit more rebellious, I, I, I can certainly remember in the very early 70s, you know, it being booed a bit not for any reason other than the fact that i think it was just the established you know it was just mm -hmm. felt like an establishment thing and fans were a bit more opinionated and rebellious then but it you know it survived that little scare as well and now now it's a great part of the day isn't it absolutely we, we even had it at the covid cup final didn't we absolutely uh so you know it, it's a it's a very I've only been to two cup finals, the two the, the Villa have played in my lifetime, but two FA Cup finals. Uh, but it's a very stirring thing when it's sung. You know, it's you, you need a big hanky at that moment, I think. Absolutely. What uh, what hasn't um, stood the test of time, literally, because it got knocked down. But in 1923, it was built, the Twin Towers, and that yeah. final was some final. Billy played a great game, didn't he, that day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. They should have a, you know, what they should do. They should have a white horse at the final this year, shouldn't they? As part of the yeah, be a good, be part, a good part of the part of the pre-match ceremonials. That's not my idea, by the way. That's one of your fellow podcasters put that to me last week. I thought that's a splendid idea. Who put that? By, by the way, who said that? Uh, a, a chap I spoke to last week called uh, Johnny Brick, who runs a. A podcast called the Football Library. Lovely, well done, Johnny. Great, great, great chat. Fine young man, and I thought that was a splendid, yeah. splendid idea. Absolutely. Uh, so the building of the Twin Towers. Yeah, there's a there's a lovely there a triumph for a triumph for concrete there. <laughs> and wood. <laughs> and, and the, the, the stadium was built in just over a year. It was done in very, very quick time, and. Uh, not far over budget, I think, either. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I'm, I don't, what, what do you think about this, Gabby? I'm not terribly sentimental about the old Wembley. I'm a football traditionalist, to be fair. I'm a little bit anti-establishment, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, right. Oh, but 
yet, but but I do respect the establishment. Um, I'm very much in the historical uh, situation where we should have just left Wembley or kept the Twin Towers. I get the arch and that, but for me, the Twin Towers, and being a Birmingham City fan, I've never watched my team in a proper cup final. Well, I say that, I watched them at Wembley in the League Cup final, which is a proper cup final, obviously. But I'm Definitely. talking, yeah, talking way back when I was a kid. We uh, we soon realised that if we were waiting for Birmingham City to get to an FA Cup final to see Wembley, we're going to be old men. So I used to go to the old schoolboys when England played an oh, international I? game, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and I think that when you saw the Twin Towers for the first time, it for me it was just magical, and whether right, that yeah. was because I was a kid, and it was Wembley, it was the home of football. It was you know sports night, FA Cup, your football, you want to watch it. Whether it was that romantic side of me that I've always had, I sometimes don't like the game at times, and I don't like uh, the way that the historical content is taken out and almost eroded. And uh, but just seeing it and really cherishing that moment and I don't think I would have felt the same way about the arch I, I agree with that uh, I mean cause goodness knows nobody's more romantic about sport than me yeah. but but I do think you know if you had to use those toilets in the the old Wembley or you oh, know, was so many t- the last time I saw the villa there in 96 we had a shockingly bad seat which we paid a fortune for mm. so, and I, I just think some things are not you know, some we've got. A, I think it's a fantastic stadium now. Some things are yeah, generally there. Are, there are bad things with it. Agreed, but yeah. you know, I, I I wouldn't have died on a hill for the old Wembley. Yeah, I died think in it, died in a ditch. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of a stadium. The new Wembley is a far greater stadium than the old Wembley was. But just think that that Twin Towers, I would have loved them to somehow recreate the Twin Towers because I, I just I thought that they were very, special. I think that's a very common thing. And if they could have even been somewhere on the approach to it, that yeah. might have been something. If not, you know, I'm sure it would have been virtually impossible to make them part of the stadium. But if they could have been somewhere on the approach to it, that would definitely have been a better thing, undoubtedly, yeah. Absolutely. Jamie Vardy on the front. There's no one taking the FA Cup off him. That's no. a fantastic photo. It's mine and you ain't having it. And why, Sund- <laughs> why Sunderland as well? And how difficult well, was it to pick those two images for the front page? Well, I I was blessed in, with this book and I shouldn't, I should, uh, no discussion about this book should go without mentioning uh, Duncan Olner, the designer, who uh, has done a fantastic job. And actually... We had some, obviously, you have some debate about the about covers because they're very important Yeah. Uh, with publisher, with designer. And the Sunderland one is the only picture in the entire book that I didn't select. Right. Duncan selected that. And when people see the book, they'll realise why. And it's because, you know, you've got a colour modern image of a single person not really filling the top of the page. Uh, this is like my graphic design lesson, Gabby. I don't. I hope you're yeah. paying attention. I oh, am. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then at the bottom. So at the bottom, you need a, an historic image, black and white, and it's got to fill a bit more space. It's got to fan out. Yeah. So you know, if when people see the cover, 
it's like most of these things with design it, it's it's subliminal isn't it yeah. you don't actually take that in but actually that's what he would have been thinking it's the only picture i didn't select but i, I do love it rachel carter there in the middle and, up the uh, and jamie we had we had a few people in there we had uh the designer originally duncan uh chose olive a nice one of oliver Giroux. Okay. he was kissing, kissing the cup almost the same as the vardy one uh that wasn't quite right then we had one of stephen gerrard in 2006 because i thought you know we need something more modern then we thought hang on a minute that looks like the book come out in 2006 not now and that conversation just led us to the most recent winners, really, which, of course, were Leicester City and still are Leicester City. Uh, and then the Vardy story is just such a classic cut story. Absolutely. You know, played in every round bar, the extra preliminary round. Uh, so that's how we ended up with Jamie, really. Uh, you know, the, things like the covers, anyone who's published a book and, you know, all your guests that, that you have on every week, they'll, know, they'll tell you a similar thing covers are you know discussed long and hard because you know they're crucial to selling the book really it's got to look attractive to people hasn't it absolutely and you're right it's a, a, a very much a boy's own story isn't it the jamie vardy story so i think it's a very apt front cover fantastic and in race carter the only player to win fa cup winners medals on both sides of the the war very good bit of trivia yeah mm. very good Sunderland in 37, Derby in 46. Absolutely. My word, what a partner he had up front for Derby in 46. The great Peter Doherty. Yeah, I've written about that. I've written about that. And, uh, yeah, just that must have been tremendous, wasn't it, to see those two in action? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you would pay... You would pay good money to watch those two because they were both genius. And and Len Shackleton said of Peter Doherty, a genius among geniuses. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think the pitches were like at the baseball ground in those days? <laughs> oh yeah, they're probably similar to what the pitches were when Audi and the boys were playing in the seventies. That baseball grounds always that was the worst, wasn't it? Oh, it was probably the worst, but you know, um, fit for the game of baseball rather than football. And of course, they used to play baseball, hence the name. I love the picture and the inside cover as well. The great Dixie Dean. Uh, Yeah, Steve Bloomer, Dixie Dean and Jimmy Greaves, the only three to sit on the top table of over over 1,000 goals. Blimey, they never scored that many. But over 300 goals apiece. It does make me laugh when people, the modern day uh, journalists, presenters, talk about joining the 100 club in the Premier League. No, 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 no. These yeah. boys were in the 300 club in the yeah, football they league. They've got a bit of a way to go, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's lovely. That's, uh, obviously, we can't show you pictures. You'll have to go out and look at the book. But that's Everton bringing the cup home in 53. Uh, uh, 33, sorry. 33, yeah. Uh, and Dixie holding it aloft on a horse-drawn carriage through the streets of Liverpool. It's fantastic, fantastic. Fantastic image, fantastic team, fantastic player. And while we're going back to the early days... Only two teams that have played from the first FA Cup uh, games to the modern FA Cup games, but mo- both missed one season. I was aware of this fact. I thought it would have been the same season for 
the reason of a war or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was two mm-hmm. different seasons for both clubs. So you uh, you put a little bit of meat on the bone of that, if you would, please, Richard. Yeah, well, uh, the two clubs are Maidenhead. Yeah. I play Maidenhead United, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and Marlow, Marlow. Uh, not far away, uh, who play step four of non-league in, in one of the divisions, first divisions of the Isthmian League. Uh, both were in the first competition in 1871-72. Fantastic. Both played, they played each other, I think, on the opening day of FA Cup games, which is just brilliant fact, isn't it? Yeah. And both have only missed one competition. Uh, Maidenhead couldn't raise them to enter. And Marlowe missed a year because the FA lost their the envelope with their application. But other than that, which I think gives Marlowe a marginal advantage, don't you? I do. Why I chose to use of Marlow rather than sorry to all the Maidenhead fans, but uh, so both of them have played in every FA Cup competition but one, which is a real wow fact. Birmingham City have not obviously played in that many uh, games uh, years in the FA Cup, but Birmingham City didn't enter the competition one year. Again, I think they're I think it was lost by the Football Association. I didn't know that. That's yeah. fantastic. I'm yeah. almost certain that we didn't enter it the one year because of, of the same reason of, of Marlowe. So the administration of the FA Cup, uh, the secretaries sometimes uh, led a little bit to be desired. Maybe, maybe it was the postman, Gabby. Well, you got to blame it on Pat. I mean, I mean, the cat was having the cat was having a bad day, but um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But Aston Villa. There's always the, the, the rib tickling in the Midlands. We've lost the FA Cup more times than you've won it. And you did, didn't yeah. you? You lost the yeah. FA Cup. 1895. Yeah, that story's told right at the start of the books. Mm. Uh, and, uh, uh, do you want me to tell the story? Why not? Yeah, OK. Well, the Villa won the Cup. They beat the Albion at the Crystal Palace, the first final at the Crystal Palace. And uh, they gave it to put on display in his window to their kit supplier, a man called William Shilcock, who had a house in, oh, had a shop, sorry, in Newtown Row. And uh, one night, three guys got in, I think it was three guys, and stole it. And it was never seen again. And the theory goes that it was, they took it away and melted it down uh, and had somebody in the jewellery quarter, they were a, a fourth man in the jewellery quarter who was going to, give them money for it actually he gave them far less than he told them he was going to give them and this story took about a hundred years to come that the the revelation of who was responsible took about a hundred years to come to light and that was through some great work by a chap called Bernard Gallagher a man who lots of your listeners will also know used another one who another chap who used to be Villa program editor in the filler club magazine in the mid 1990s he over a couple of months he ran the full story and the, the thief was a man called stosher state who's uh was called stosher because of his splendid mustache and he's pictured in the book and, sounds like uh, a peaky blinder doesn't he <laughs> it does he does he looks like one too. and and uh we we're pretty sure that it was stosher and his mates who stole the cup and and only got a few shillings for it in the end, so it wasn't worth it. But the villa made money on it because they'd, they'd insured it and they claimed. The, 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 the amount the villa claimed on the insurers was far more than they were fined by the FA for losing it. Wow. So so that was a good... Doug Ellis would have been proud of that bit of business. 
Uh, managers that have won the FA Cup. George Ramsey won it six times for the Villa. And Arsene oh, Wenger I, won I it. Sorry? Can I stop you there, Gabby? You've just, you've, just, you've just tumbled headlong into one of the great FA Cup myths there, haven't you? Right. You've just done, you, you're a bit like, you know those old films where Norman Wisdom walks down the road whistling <laughs> and falls down a manhole cover, cause he, which he doesn't see because he's, you know, he's looking at the world whistling. You've just done a, a Norman Wisdom there. George Ramsey was never Aston Villa's manager. Right, okay. He he had that title. He had the title secretary manager. Yes. And he and he ran the and I've gone into this on the little piece about Arsene Wenger. Great stuff. Great picture about Arsene. Great picture of Arsene Wenger in 2017. And I've addressed this issue. George Ramsey was the secretary and he had a secretary's duties. He was the manager in as much as he ran the club. Yeah. But the directors picked the team gotcha. and the trainer took training right. and the players worked out tactics amongst themselves. Wow. So in no way was he comparable to a modern manager. Right. And this is, I'm afraid, this has been allowed to, since people started digging around when Arsene Wenger began to win the cup regularly, this, this has started to be sort of repeated. Uh, usually on the internet. If Dave Woodall is listening, the Villa fanzine editor, good lad, he'll be—he is a good lad, and he'll—he'll be—he'll be getting to his feet and applauding now because this is one of—I've quoted him in the book actually on this. This is one of his. Uh, this is one of the big things that he and I go on about. George Ramsey was never Villa's manager, in the sense that manager is understood now. Who was the trainer then who should take the um, the applause? And... Well, it would have been over the period of Villa's six wins. You got me on the, you put me on the spot mm-hmm. there. Over the period of Villa's six wins, it would have been different people. Yeah. Well, the trainer just made sure they ran around the pitch. Yeah, really. sure. I mean, the players, I'll, I'll give you an example of what, how the players picked the team. In 19, before the opening game in 1920, I don't know whether it was the first round in those days or the third round. I don't have that to hand, but yeah. I, but Villa were Villa were playing QPR, then in the Southern League, in the in the whatever the first or the third round on the Saturday, they got a few problems up front, and a few players, senior players, went to see the directors, and said, "You should give this young lad Billy Walker a go." <laughs> you know, this we, we've we've noticed him. You know, playing for the reserves, whatever, he's ready for the first team. So. Billy Walker made his debut on the Saturday. I think he scored twice and, you know, uh, became perhaps still Villa's greatest ever player. Yeah. Now, but he only got his chance because the senior players went to the directors and said, this lad's ready for the first team. So that gives you an indication that Ramsey was not the manager in the way that we understand manager these days. We do know he was a captain in 1920, and that oh, was Andy, Andy Ducat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. What a what a what a man. Dual international. Yeah. Football. What what one Test match for England in 1921 against the Australians? He didn't do very well, but nevertheless, you can't take that away from him. Uh, he wasn't supposed to be Villa captain in that final. Jimmy Harrop was the captain, right. and Harrop was injured a few weeks before, so Ducat took over. Cool, elegant, unhurried, uh, wing half, you know, a magnificent sportsman, magnificent athlete and uh, a very, very good batsman in county cricket as well. Scored many thousands of runs. So he achieved what I think 
is a double that no one else has done and which will certainly never be done again within a few weeks of uh within a few weeks he was a wisdom cricketer of the year and he was an fa cup final winning captain wow i'm pretty sure that's never going to be repeated gabby don't you and he died at the crease as well didn't he he did at lords 1942 playing Mm -hmm. for surrey home guard against sussex home guard they'd just come back after lunch he was obviously well past it then but he was in the home guard he'd had a medical examination i I know this because uh and i think you've talked about this jonathan northall's got a biography of coming out in a few weeks time uh he was batting uh, just after lunch and he collapsed and I, they think he died pretty much straight away, I think. Uh, and Andy, he'd had a medical a couple of days before and the doctor told him, oh, you'll go on for years. He was he was still trim, very fit, coaching boys, coaching school boys, doing a bit of journalism. So it was a terrible shock. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? But again, you know, players people look fit and seem fit and get the well, medical I, I, that they are fit and then blimey drop down dead it's just I, I, unbelievable I, I, only, re, only a couple of only a few years ago so tragically uh Uko Ekiog, a player I yes watched, absolutely a, a player i watched a lot in the 1990s you know must, must have absolutely looked as fit as a fiddle mustn't yeah, he but yeah. so sad that yeah no, so that's sad. andy ducat yeah Wisdom Cricketer of the Year, FA Cup final winning captain. That's never going to be done again. I think you're right. And I think that's what I love about the history of football. There are situations and scenarios like that that would never be replicated. The ball burst as well in 46. And was it 47 as well? Yes, it did. In, inferior post-war materials. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. did, yeah, yeah. That probably there's sometimes balls go a bit soft these days, don't they? And sometimes you see the players stop the game and hold them up to the ref. And yeah, although it doesn't happen, well, I at the level of football I now watch at lower levels of non league, it doesn't happen that the ball gets kicked over a hedge or whatever or a fence, and you have to <laughs> and you need you use about. 15 balls in the course of a game. <laughs> yeah, it'll knock, knock on the door. Mind you, they could do that at Kenilworth Road, couldn't they? Sandy they Brown, 15 goals for the only non-league team to ever win the FA Cup. And I couldn't believe this when I... I mean, I learned of this many years ago. Tottenham non-league are having a laugh, in not Southern League, they won the FA Cup. They did. The Southern League was very strong, of course, yeah. uh, and a lot of clubs that we know, QPR, West Ham, Crystal Palace, uh, Reading, you know, all, uh, those clubs played in the Southern League. Yeah. Well, I think people don't realise is that how much the early day, in the early days of professional football, it was a Midland and Northern preserve. Yes. You know, until Woolwich Arsenal came along, there were no uh, football league clubs in the South. I think that's right. Answers on a postcard if I'm wrong. And uh, so although the Southern League, obviously Tottenham's achievement was extraordinary, but the Southern League was very strong and they could, some of those clubs could actually pay more because there was no maximum wage. So they could lure players down from, you know, maybe someone who was dissatisfied at a Midland club or a Northern club, they could lure them down and actually find them a job pay them for playing football and the players would be better off. Yeah. So yes, they were non-league. Yes. It's an amazing story, but 
they weren't quite as non-league as as you know. Ailes Owen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good. Good example. Yeah. Yeah. Good example. The FA Cup being protected during the Second World War. That story's in the book. We're not going to talk about that because we want people to buy the book. So there's some fabulous stories in there. I mean, it is a treasure chest. Uh, 1981 was the 100th FA Cup final, wasn't it? Played between Manchester City and Tottenham Hotspurs. It was, yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's that's an anniversary we don't... It was sated, I think, but, you mm-hmm. know, the, I remember eight, uh, 1982 Leeds-Arsenal as yep. being the final with the parade beforehand. But I suppose... That tells you that in uh, twenty thirty two we'll have the hundred and fiftieth final. So, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, that was celebrated less, but luckily, you know, there were two great games, weren't they? Ricky Villa and you know, a, a very good, a drawn game on the Saturday, and then an absolute classic final. Absolutely, and Steve Perryman, because the the winning goal was one of the classic and greatest goals that we've seen to win a Wembley Cup final by Ricardo Villa, who came over to England with uh, his little fella and pal Osvaldo Ardiles after the 78 World Cup finals. So he wore the number five shirt, but he didn't wear the number five shirt in the first game. Cabby, your tri- your tri- you've you've out you've over, you've over you've done me for trivia. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. Steve Perryman did. What I do know is this, and this is he was substituted in the first game, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And stormed off. Yes, he did. He, didn't, he, didn't, he was he was so I think this with his own performance uh, a bit a, a bit of the Benito Carbonis. He he stormed off, and Perryman went to Keith Birkenshaw and said you should play because he's you know this is such a bad thing for team spirit and all that stuff, what have you. Uh, so that Perryman he wouldn't have been playing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If Steve Perryman is way in the second game. That's absolutely a... true because Keith used to ask Steve his opinion. Lots of managers used to, of course, especially with the captains. And Steve yes. would say, he'd ask me, but he wouldn't take me advice. Steve Perryman's <laughs> advice when Keith asked him, would he play Ricky in the uh, replay, was now I fucking well wouldn't. He stormed <laughs> off there and Steve <laughs> wouldn't have played him, but uh, he did. And Steve returned to his usual number six shirt and Ricky had the number five shirt. So Ricky Villa actually did score the winning goal in Steve Perryman's shirt, the number five shirt. Well, that's something I didn't know. That's a fantastic bit of information. Another lovely bit of information. Sorry. I've been on the stand for volume two. Absolutely. 1974, arguably the most... 
controversial FA Cup tie um, of all time involving Newcastle United and Nottingham Forest. You do cover it in the book as well. Lovely story. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, Newcastle, there was this tremendous, as there always is still in Newcastle, tremendous expectation. Sunderland had won it the previous year, which must have added to the pressure. They drew Forest uh, and Forest were a middle in second division club. So they're expected to win. They're at home. They're expected. And early on in the second half, they find themselves 3-1 down. Uh, long-term Newcastle fans might might recognise this scenario. Uh, I don't mean the what followed, but the fact they were they were disappointing on a was a big day for them. Uh, and so there was a pitch invasion to try and stop the game, not because the fans wanted to punch up with the Forest fans. They streamed on from the Lees's end, which was then the Newcastle sort of cop end, not not the Gallagate as it is now. And uh, they streamed on and they stopped the game. The players went off, but. The players, the players went off, but actually the police did, did a good job and got them off quite quickly and the game resumed. So the attempt to have the match abandoned failed. But when the teams came out again, where the Forest were a bit spooked, Forest actually thought the ref was. Uh, Newcastle fought back and ended up winning 4-3, but Forest objected to, the, objected to the FA and a rematch was ordered, which took place at Goodison. Forest were a bit perplexed by that. They thought it should have been at the city ground. And they drew nil-nil, I think. Yes, uh, and so there was another game. And even more, surely that should have been the third game. But that was at Goodham as yeah. well. And Newcastle eventually won very narrowly. So, that yeah, that was extremely controversial. And, yeah. but, but getting a match replayed, there's another spread in there which you might have seen. Of a, something I was actually sort of involved with, which was when... Burton Albion played Leicester in 1985. Right. Okay. And uh, the Burton Albion goalkeeper, Paul Evans, was hit by, I think, a bit of, a bit of wood. Uh, uh, thrown from the Leicester end, knocked unconscious. It was 1-1 at the time. And uh, he was very groggy, but he carried on. This was before, sub, you know, we had sub-goalkeepers on the bench. Yeah. He carried on, obviously, in no fit state to continue. And Leicester won 6-1. Gary Lineker scored a hat-trick. And afterwards, it's a cracking story, really. The reason I know, the reason I was involved in this, you're probably scratching your head and thinking that I was then sports editor of the Burton Mail newspaper. Right. The second job of my career. And Burton had a promising young manager called Neil Warnock, <laughs> uh, uh, who was involved in this. And so 6-1, they've lost with a groggy keeper. But there's absolutely no thought of injustice it was just hooliganism that happened all the time those days and you had to take it their big day had been spoiled but they'd made a lot of money this was did i say this was at the baseball ground by the way i don't think no they didn't know burton were drawn burton were drawn at home to the massive Mm. you've got to remember this long long before or or even dreamt uh so they switched the game to the baseball ground obviously partly because their ground wasn't up to it and partly because they saw they could make a lot more money they did make a lot of money uh and immediately afterwards, there was no thought of getting the match replayed or objecting. They just thought, well, that's you know, bad luck and all that. But a group of journalists from the Monday morning paper searching for another angle, as Monday morning writers tend to do, sort of got their heads together and said, why don't we go and see the Burton chairman and try and get him to try and get him outraged and ask for a rematch. Uh, so the, the they did. And the Burton chairman, a chap called Bill Royal, sat and listened to them and thought, yeah, actually, 
<laughs> we should ask for a rematch. Uh, and, and so they protested to the FA and the FA agreed with them and it was played behind closed doors, actually at Highfield Road. It should have been back at the baseball ground, but it was particularly cold snap of weather then. So they ended up playing at Highfield Road behind closed doors. What was the score? One nil to Leicester. But the upshot of it was, Gabby, was that Gary Lineker never scored an FA Cup hat trick. Dennis Law never scored a double hat trick. No, he didn't. No, well, that's a very similar case. Uh, so, so poor old Gary, this is really why it makes the book. Gary Lineker can't claim to have got an FA Cup hat trick, even though he did actually score one. Going back to the Forest game, do you know what the spark was for the pitch invasion? Well... Forest had just gone 3-1 up. Do you think there was something else? Oh, there was, 100%. What had happened, uh, Duncan McKenzie ran into one of the Newcastle defenders. Well, this was right. this was Pat Howard's account of what went on. So he went, ah, okay. he went to the referee, he said, ref, that was never a penalty. So the referee says, I'm giving it. And he says, if you give that, that end a penalty, he said, look, if you don't shut up, I'll send you off. And Pat said, you send me off, there'll be a riot here. So he said, if you don't shut up, I'm sending you off. And anyhow, Pat was still remonstrating, and he sent Pat off. Sure enough, what happened? Pat Howard got sent off, and there was a riot. They all come onto the pitch. Bobby Moncur scored the winning goal in the the dying minutes. I I, I knew that Pat Howard had been sent off, and that's mentioned. And that was, yeah, that's what happened. This is more scribbling for the second edition. And also as well, in 1972, one of the greatest goals ever in John Monson's debut, the ball whistled past past, uh, Pat, or just above Pat's head. And he thought, because I've done done a few podcasts with Pat, and um, I wished him happy anniversary. And he said, what for, Gabby? I said, Hereford United versus Newcastle, Pat. Thanks for that. He said, as he whistled past me, he he said, I thought, that's got half a chance of it in the back of the net. What a (laughs) a goal. Tremendous. Yeah, that's one of the, that's got everything that game, hasn't it? That, that, you know, the classic goal, the pitch, the kids running on in their parkers, you know, it's just... Absolutely classic, you know. And Newcastle, sorry, Newcastle fans, but there you are, Newcastle, the four guys again. Uh, just uh, that, and as you say, made John Motson's career unbelievable. Really, it was it was it was fifty years ago the other week, wasn't it? Happy yeah. Ronnie Radford Day. I remember wishing people, yeah. Feel sorry uh, for Ricky George. A little bit, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not. You watch that again. You're not quite sure how that shot goes in, are you? That Ricky George shot. I know, you're, yeah. You're pretty certain what how the Ronnie Radford shot goes in, but Ricky George's didn't seem to hit it at all. But I think it was just placement and probably flat-footed goalkeeper. And on and on came the kids in the parkers again, didn't they? Absolutely. 1972, the final, the centenary final. What a wonderful goal by uh, by Alan Clark, who had his fingers trod on by Peter Simpson earlier in that move, you know. Did he? Deliberately? Yeah, probably. Yes, I would <laughs> probably. have thought so. Having that Arsenal team, I'm not I'm not wouldn't be at all surprised. Great header, wasn't it? He was gonna volley it. Really? Is that yeah. what he said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was gonna volley it, but as the ball came over, it dipped and he thought, I'm gonna dive and head this and he Diving edit and went into the back of the net. Mick Jones, of course. 
Classic David Coleman, 1-0, wasn't it? Yeah. What a great commentator he was. I mean, let's talk about commentators for a bit. Because they made the game as well, didn't they? You know, we had great commentators, I think, in, in those days. These days, I don't know. They just seem to be, let's say, different. But back in the day, we, we were blessed with great commentators. I think the BBC have still got some good ones. OK. I, I don't watch it. And I think Sky have too. I yeah. think they uh, you know, obviously the the analysis and the the co-commentator, that's all gone to a new level, hasn't it? Yeah. Since, again, I think, well, I'm not accusing you of over-romanticising, Gabby, but, I, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's not, I don't know, really. There were some guys, I, I think Kenneth Horseman was terribly overrated, though. Sorry, I know, okay. I know, the bolt, I know there's a bolt of lightning going to strike me down now, but I do think Kenneth Horseman... Uh, though he did utter the greatest commentary line of all time yeah, in absolutely. any sport. So maybe we should forgive him everything else. But do you remember he made a comeback in the 70s doing football in the northeast? No. I mean, in the 70s but, on ITV, it was Hugh Johns yes. for us. Yeah, in the Midlands, in yeah. The Midlands, but in the northeast, yeah. for a few seasons, it was Kenneth Wollstone. And, yeah. and uh, he just didn't speak for minutes on end. You know, no. it's just... <laughs> It would. So I don't know. I, I always think Kenneth Horton was... Kenneth? Where's Kenneth? He's dropped off to sleep. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what Kenneth or the Cocom would have thought about the uh, Leatherhead lip. Oh, yeah, that... It, I can't tell you who commented on that, but anyone who wants to YouTube it will find mm. it in a second. Chris Kelly, yeah, yeah. He should have put them 3-0 up. He just missed that. That's the picture in the book. from Yeah. Uh, Fine margin. Fine margins, yeah. He went round the keeper. He just delayed a second too long and was cleared off the line. Uh, yeah, what a story that would have been. Leatherhead. Would it? Oh, absolutely. Amateurs, and they Amateurs. gave him a right good game, didn't they, Leicester City? Yeah, well, they were... Uh, Kelly had scored a very yeah. good goal. Mm -hmm. So, it was John Motson. It was John Motson. John Motson came up with a great line. He said, so it wasn't all tour. Kelly had been talking himself up in the build to the game. Uh, and he missed this chance to 3-0. Surely Leicester would come back from 3-0. Uh, uh, in and interestingly, you know, they were... In the Isthmian League in those days, they were still amateur. You know, maybe some of them got a bit of money in the boot. But they were, they, you know, they weren't semi-pros. Quite an interesting... I thought, I, when I came across that while doing my research, it was quite an interesting... That was right at the end of the amateur. I love the story of 1973. I mean, what a great double save by Jim Montgomery, by the way. But it yes. was after the FA Cup final when Queen's Park Rangers went to Roker Park and won Stanley Bowles. Smash the FA Cup off the plinth. Did he? Yeah, he did, yeah. On a that, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I did. Yeah, him and Don Shanks, they were having a bet. <laughs> they always did. But uh, yeah, Stan. Stan was. Um, he, he had a bet that he could knock the FA Cup on the plinth off the plinth because he would have a bet on everything. Stan bowls. And yeah. Again, Stan yeah. was uh, was 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 good for uh, a bet. I mean, that left foot of his was like a wand, and uh, yes, he knocked the FA Cup off its plinth. Good for Stan, yeah, good for Stan. Can't argue with that. If he could pass a betting shot like he could pass a ball. Absolutely. Was that Ernie Tag, his manager? It certainly was, Ernie, yes. I mean, that's been levelled at many a player. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was it was Ernie's line to to Stan Bowles. Talking about players talking themselves up, in 1974... Um, we had a situation where it was levelled that Malcolm McDonald was telling the Liverpool players what he was going to do at Wembley 
And they were walked out in a purple tracksuit, didn't they? Tops, not bottoms. Yes, that's a good fact. Again, you've dredged up another good one there. I'd forgotten that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was uh, poor old Malcolm McDonald. He never quite sparkled in the cup final, did he? There was that joke about what gets what gets taken to Wembley every year and not used. Yeah. And the the, the answer is, to, of course, the the ribbons of the runners up. But somebody said, oh, it's Malcolm McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't the he wasn't the only what big player to. To dis, you know, how many cup finals did John Barnes play in? John Barnes mm -hmm. never graced that stage despite having two or three opportunities to do so. Uh, and a story in the book of Tom Finney, you know, Tom Finney in '54 against yep. the Albion. Uh, it, that, that's in the book. And, you know, this was again scripted to be Finney's year, a year after Matthews. Uh, and he had a very poor game. And, you know, Albion won. Uh, and poor old. Tom never got, you know, one of the possibly the greatest English footballer of all time, never got the chance to win the FA Cup. Another great footballer, um, an Irish lad, uh, George Best, never played he in the Cup bad. final. Not yeah. bad. And Johnny Haynes never won the FA Cup. I think Johnny ever played in the final as well. Too no. great not to play in the FA Cup final. That's that's a very good one, Gabby. Yeah, Johnny Haynes. Yeah, yeah. There's a good story in the book about George Best, and George Best loved the FA Cup, and he was taken just after he'd signed for United as an apprentice. He was taken to the '63 final, and uh, you know, just absolutely fell in love with Wembley and the occasion and the romance and everything like that, and just loved the whole thing, and dreamt of getting there. And of course, United lost the a string of semi-finals during his career and he never made it and that was a cause of great sadness to him. Because the football world wanted Chelsea versus Manchester United, didn't they? Yes. That yes. was the that was the blue ribbon. That was Chelsea yes. from the south against Manchester United. The yeah. FA Cup final, the first FA Cup final, nineteen seventy. Yeah, Leeds, Leeds took Leeds took three games to get past United, and and yeah. and best missed a chance in the second replay. No, the first replay at Villa Park. Uh, I won't regale. In case you've got any young listeners, I won't regale them with the story of uh, what he'd been doing that afternoon. But he had a poor game. And uh, Mr. Chance, and you know, as I say, never there was they replayed two nights later at Bolton and Leeds won 1 0, I think. And uh, he never got the chance. Shame, isn't it? Great shame. I think you, you, you're absolutely right. George did score off the pitch as well as on the pitch. Um, what a player, yeah. one of the greatest ever. And I think one of the only people that wanted Leeds United to play in that final was Alan Hudson. And sadly, Huddy missed that final when he went down a divvy little hole at the Hawthorns on um, Easter Monday in 1970. Yeah, it was, yeah. He missed it through injury, which was, a you know, I remember reading the, you know, while writing the book, I was reading the previews of the final and it was thought that his absence would be, you know, critical to Chelsea really it wasn't in the end although you know they came very close to losing that first game at Wembley didn't they absolutely and Osgood scoring in every round as did Jeff Astle and players don't score in every round these days they don't play in every round I guess no, is the no, answer. That's right. I mean I, I don't know what the recent statistics are of that but you're probably right that mm -hmm. at some point they get rested or they get substituted after an hour uh you know which didn't used to happen did it you didn't take off your 
Yeah, but but players scoring every round. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Astle, Stan Mortensen in '53. Uh, yeah, they were yeah special players, as you said, Gabby. And I, and I suppose really we've got to feel a little bit sorry for um, Stan Mortensen in the Matthews final. It's a, oh, well, I it's mean, incredible, Stan, isn't it really? Like... He scored a hat trick and they yeah. didn't even. Uh, I mean, Stanley Matthews said that himself. You know, I wasn't the man of the match. Yeah. You know, at, at all. So to be fair, Stanley Matthews did acknowledge that in two thousand and three uh, on the anniversary to mark the anniversary just before the cup final I was working at the Times then uh, and I got Opta the you know modern day analyst to watch the 53 cup final and come up with their stats based on the game right. and uh, Stan Mortensen was the, by Opta's standards by Opta's measurements Stan Mortensen was the man of the match by, by a mile and I think Stanley Matthews was only fifth or something like that <laughs> fourth or fifth he wasn't, he wasn't that high, which is a staggering thing, really. And the 1970 final, there was that myth that um, the pitch was so bad because the Horse of the Year uh, show was on there that yeah, cut the, it all the, up. Show jumping had been staged there, but not immediately before the final, as is commonly. I mean, the pitch, that's partly the reason the pitch was in such a bad state, but, you know, there were lots of other reasons as well. Uh, I recommend people have to a book called All Crazy Now by David Tossel on the uh, uh, on football in the 70s. And that uh, he, he explains that in, in, in great detail. And, and that myth has arisen about the Horse of the Year show. Show jumping on the pitch was part of the reason, but it wasn't the only reason. That, and it hadn't been that recently. So. Absolutely. It's one of um, David loves to tell that story because you say to David, Dave, do you know why the pitch was so bad? They had the horse of the year. No, they never. <laughs> no, no he, yeah, you might, yeah. You know, might hear an explosion. Yeah, yeah, at the uh, end of the Absolutely. Um, Albion beating Birmingham City in 1931. That I've been be very... Yes, that I thought it might be. <laughs> in the whole book. No, no, nothing to do with Blues losing the final. That, the picture of the Albion players, yeah. Paddington Station, Monday afternoon, just about to go back with the car, climbing all over the locomotive. I mean, that, that uh, you, you know the picture I mean, Gabby, that, yeah. that's a fantastic picture, isn't it? Yeah, just it is. Absolutely fantastic. Just, yeah, they didn't worry much about health and safety, did they? No, they didn't because it wasn't, you know, we didn't realise things in them days. We just got on with it. There was no health and safety. But I've been very close to that boot. I, I did an interview with Jeremy Peace years ago and he says, Gabby, let me show you the boot that scored the winning goal against Birmingham City. Uh, it was in the boardroom at the Hawthorns. I'm guessing it still is. I said, thanks for that, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Icon's <laughs> a lovely chapter. The club that shook football, Blackburn Olympic, in a team group believed to have been taken around May 1882. What a great photograph that is, isn't it? It's a great photo, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to come across them on a dark night, would you? Again, they look like Peaky Blinders, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Blackburn Olympic, for people who don't know the story, they won the cup in 1883 uh, and they were the first northern professionals to win the cup. They only had two or three professionals, but previously, between 1872 and that year, the cup was the was the preserve of 
southern teams made up of former public school boys. Uh, you know, you, you, we know the names Wanderers, Royal yeah. Engineers, Old Etonians. We know all those names, yeah. Clapham Rovers. Uh, they contested the finals. And then, you know, the cup, as the cup gradually grew, and this was Blackburn Olympic winning the cup was one of the absolutely key moments in the history of football because from that moment, you know, paying players to play became a huge thing and uh, professionalism, which wasn't legalised for some years, but it was, it was from that day, it was inevitable. So Blackburn Olympic, although they quickly disappeared, they crashed and burned within a very few years. They, they were, they are absolute, the, the team that shook football, as you rightly say, Gavin. 1911, Bradford lift their own trophy, and yeah, the uh, the Urn weighs 175 ounces and is 19 inches high, exclusive of the plinth. The body has a series of bold flutings surmounted by four panels decorated with rich bunches of grapes and vine leaves. I didn't realise that. No, that's a description by Geoffrey Green, uh, distinguished Times football correspondent in his 1949 book about the cup, yeah. which is a terrific book. And uh, those aren't my words for anybody who thinks uh, thinks that. Uh, so th the FA decided there was a, they needed a new trophy around 1910, and they put it out to tender. Uh, and it was the competition to design the new one and and manufactured the new one was run by was won by a Bradford company the Fataronis who uh, uh, if you look them up fascinating history the company they're still going still making trophies and medals which is brilliant isn't it and they came up with the design that we know now uh, and lo and behold in the first year of the new trophy made in Bradford designed in Bradford who should win it Bradford City just I mean, the FA Cup, you can't beat it for stories, can you? That, that And that's one of the best. Bradford never won it since, uh, but they won it in the first year of the new trophy. So, yeah, that's a great story. And Berry have won the uh, the FA Cup as well. Sadly, no longer with us, but um, Berry a team that have won the FA Cup. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, with a 6-0 with a win yeah. against our county, uh, which was a record that Manchester City equal didn't they against Watford uh yeah Barry uh, lots of clubs who perhaps younger readers wouldn't associate with cup glory but that's I mean I'm going right back to your opening remarks here Gabby that that was the thing there was this romance about it yeah. wasn't necessarily won by one of the top four uh you know it, it, it could be won by a team halfway down the league it, sometimes it was won by a team from the second tier, you know, you mentioned Sunderland not long ago, didn't you? So, and West Brom indeed in '31 were in the second tier. So, didn't happen very often, but but it really was open to everybody, you know. And you know, Villa won it in '57 from a, a very average league position. That 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 was part of the appeal, really. It wasn't just the preserve of a few. And thank goodness for Leicester last season, who, you know, brought a little bit of romance back. Even but. Even Leicester were in the top five in the Premier League, weren't they, at the time? Absolutely. Last team to win it without any internationals. Would that be West Ham in 1980 against Arsenal? Trevor Brook in stooping header. Oh, very famous final. They had no. Well, Trevor would have been an international by then. Yes, of course he would have. Yeah. 
Yes, no, no, we would have. Yeah. You're going to send course. me deep into the record books to find that without. Mm. That wouldn't happen now, would it? That's impossible, surely. No, but they were second. I think he probably was the only international, wasn't he, in that West Ham? They were second division, though, wasn't they? When they, they were, were. Yeah, 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 they were. And, you know, we had a run of them then, didn't we? Southampton, we've already talked yeah, about. Yeah, so yeah. All of them got to the final as well, didn't they, in 75? Yeah, I remember that well. We had, we had a little run of them then. There haven't been so many of late, have there? Portsmouth. Oh, about... Portsmouth beat Cardiff, didn't they, in 2008? Cardiff were not top in the top flight. But Absolutely. Who was the smallest captain to lift the FA Cup? Was that Billy Kerr of Sunderland? Well, if you want to wait while I come upstairs with armfuls of Rothman's football yearbooks, if you've got a couple of... <laughs> He'd be close, wouldn't he? He Billy would be, yeah. Billy Bumner, year before. Yeah. You have to look those two up. They'd be close, wouldn't they? I'm but then, Gabby, that you've just raised something interesting there. Of course, back in the day, players, because of diet and things, were not that were not as tall as they are now. Correct. Yeah. Now I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a bit of trivia that even you don't know. This one, in the 1913 final between Villa and Sunderland, yeah. only one of the 22 players was over six foot. Blimey. And Who I, Charles Buchan. Of wow. Who later founded a rather famous magazine. Didn't he just? Scored yeah. a lot of goals and all. Yeah, he did. Charles Buchan was the only one of the 22 who was over six foot. Wow. So it's possible, I suppose. Uh, Ernest Needham, first picture in the book, early 1899, Ernest Needham, he was quite short. There you go. I've just, I've just thrown them at you. You're going to have to go away and smallest FA Cup final winning captain. That's fantastic. That would be a fantastic list. Them two birds look decent. Um, Luton Town versus uh, Nottingham <laughs> Forest. A lot of badges and rattles cause, and rosettes. They were a staple, wasn't they, of FA Cup finals and they got a few balloons uh, there would, as well. People would get dressed up for cup, not just the final, but for cup ties in general. I think that's... Yeah. Uh, in the in the in the uh, in the chapter about fans, I do go into this a bit. You know, it travelling away support was quite was not very common until we started to get motorways in the sixties. Yeah. But uh, in for cup ties, people would travel. You know, so you got away support at cup ties in a way you didn't at league game, and that's another thing that made them you know a bit more special. What's your, have you got any favourite um, story that you've told in this book? Because as we've said from the beginning, it, it isn't in chronological order. It's really no, I, I, random. I, I, I didn't take you up on that, Gabby, and it was kind of you to bring that up because, you know, this is not for anyone uh, thinking I might buy that. This is not a chronological year-by-year year history of the FA Cup. You will find some years are not in there. What it is is a collection of fantastic images and fantastic stories from the FA Cup. Uh, and all the obvious bases are, uh, you know, 53, 63, uh, 73, apologies, 23. All, you know, the classic matches are covered, but uh, it's not the sort of you know it's not a linear history of the cup 
and I think it's all the better for that, actually. But I would say that, wouldn't I? And, and uh, as you've said, they are grouped under themes. So, you know, you might get two pictures from 1964 from what, or whatever. Uh, you asked me for a favourite story. Yeah. I rather like, I'm looking through now, I, I rather like, uh, the, I quite like the Khaki Cup final, 1915. Do you know what? what? My... Focus as I'm looking at the book now is on page 124, 125, 1915, <laughs> the Khaki Cup final. Perhaps it just falls open at that. Yeah. Uh, so for those who don't know, the the football carried on uh, during after the outbreak of the First World War for a season or two. It wasn't actually very much approved of by the authorities. It got a lot of criticism. By the time we got to the cup final of 1915, it was clear that it, it had got to stop. Yeah. And uh, so this match was played at Old Trafford, Sheffield United v Chelsea. A very, you know, hardly any travelling fans because there were no trains or fewer trains uh, and they couldn't be used for frivolous purposes. Played on a very dank Manchester day. A crowd made up mainly of soldiers, so the khaki sort of there were no bright colours around. Some of them, as the picture shows, some of them were wounded. Uh, newspapers, some of the newspapers, the Times in particular, didn't cover it because they thought the whole thing was terribly distasteful. Mm. And so it's hard to say. You asked me for a favourite story. It's too sombre to be a favourite story, but it is a good one, and it illustrates. I suppose what I've tried to do throughout the book is show the Cup's place in the history of the country as well and in the sort of social fabric of the country. And I think that story particularly does that job, really. Have you any favourite year of the FA Cup? I'm looking well, at a lovely picture in 1969 when uh, Alan Clark. He'd scored the goal that took Leicester City to the final against his team that he supported. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Good point. Do you know his Good. dad played for Wolverhampton Wanderers? Sorry, his grandfather played for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Did he? I mean, yeah. it's a famous, famous footballing mm. fan, of course, with all his brothers. I mean, my favourite year, you ask anybody of my generation, and I think you will say the same. It's seven, there's a magic about 73, isn't there? About Sunderland winning in 73. Porterfield, I mean, I think, yeah. I, I feature that. Porterfield, yep. as David Coleman again said. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I feature that story in different points of the book, I think, three times. And it's, there's, yeah, that was, it was just such an upset. Leeds were so, I know Leeds often lost finals, but they were so, they were such favourites. Sunderland again, they were only halfway up the second division, weren't they? They weren't even top of the second yeah. division. Uh, yeah. Just such a... And they played so well. And, you know, what was I, 12, 13? Ah, just, that was just magical, really. If, if you wanted 90 minutes to encapsulate what the Cup's all about, then that's the 90 minutes you'd take, surely. And also one of the giant killings um, that that we'd have to look at was... Um... Colchester against Leeds yeah, United. Yeah, story, isn't it? Colchester beating Leeds, yeah. That yeah. has to be the greatest giant killing of the FA Cup, in, in my opinion, because Leeds were that great. Yeah, they were, and they hardly, the only two cup, cup 
ties they lost either side of that were finals. They lost yeah. in the final, you know, apart from that, they only lost in finals for, for about a period of three seasons, I think. Uh, yeah, that's a great story, isn't it? Ray Crawford. Again, it was on the telly, wasn't it? David Coleman, I think, which obviously adds to the mystique. I don't think you can have a great upset unless the country's, most of the country's seen it. And because Leeds were so disliked, weren't they? That was another thing, you know, that, that was another factor in it. Everybody loved to see them, not everybody, lots of people loved to see them taken down a peg or two. So They never had the greatest PR um, machine, did they, to be fair, Leeds? Although they, they in the 70s, on, sorry? They worked hard on that, though, didn't they, with the sock tags and the wave into I the crowd? I was just going to bring that up. They 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 worked hard on their PR, and I think Reevy was a conscious of that. But no, somehow, do you know, somehow, it was nothing to do with Don. The sock tags—they were Paul Trevelyan's Absolutely, idea. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd yeah, he'd think. he'd come back from America, and he went to Bill Nicholson, and he said to Bill, "Look, I want to bring the sock tags. I want to bring the balls. I want to bring the you know the training before the game, booting the balls out onto the onto the." fans and sock tags and Bill Nicholson said we're Tottenham we don't do things like that at Tottenham go yeah, and have a yeah. word with Don Reevy and uh, and he did and it was Reevy he said will you have a word with Jack Shelton if he passes Jack then we'll do it and the rest <laughs> he did he really? yeah he did yeah, yeah. there's a yeah. wonderful story I've done a lovely little podcast with Paul it took me 37 minutes to get a word in but he's absolutely I, I guess I was going to say I, I, Paul did some work for me at the times in the uh, in the early 2000s and you're absolutely right it would have taken you yeah if you got one in after 37 minutes you did well <laughs> but he tells a story and he tells a story wonderfully of um how in the sunday people don and jack charlton concocted a plan for freddie goodwin the birmingham city manager to get suckered into it drop gordon taylor and therefore Leeds had the advantage and they would beat Birmingham City at Hillsborough. And when Paul Trevelyan turned up at Hillsborough, Don said, they've dropped Taylor. Well done, Beaver. Leeds are one up. And Leeds oh. went on and won 3 0. And, uh, and yeah. you wouldn't get that today. No, no, no. What a fantastic story that is. Didn't know that. Mm. Didn't know. Fabulous story. So Fabulous. the book, Boy. It's out now from Amazon. We have to give a shout out to the publishers, Pitch Publishing, who yeah, published some fantastic um, football books. They've done a terrific job with it, and they've been an absolutely they're 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 fine people to work with. So they've been they've been great to work with. As I say, just as mentioned, Duncan Owner, the designer again, because it you know it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the lovely thing it is without Duncan's magic. So. And I think there's always a magic story to uh, to finish on, and our time is up. And in 1933, numbers are up for City. Lovely story to go out on. A wonderful picture there. Uh, Manchester City players meet the Duke of York. Yeah, that's, this is... I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that there was a time when players didn't have numbers on their backs. It must have yeah. been incredibly hard to work out who was who. But, uh, yeah, in 1933, the FA decided to experiment with numbers. And they were numbered 1 to 22. With, uh, I think Everton took 1, that's right, Everton, Everton v Man City. Everton took 1 to 11. 
and then the, the city goalkeeper was 12. Yeah. Uh, not the goalkeeper, sorry, that's wrong. The goalkeeper, the goalkeeper would have been 22. Uh, I'm looking at the picture now. The Everton uh, goalkeeper, Ted Sager, wore number one, but number 12 was city left winger, Eric Brook. Yeah, Eric Brook's on the photo. Mm. And uh, meeting the Duke yeah. of York. Absolutely. Stood in, who stood in for the King because at the last minute, at the last minute, because it was a bit chilly. And the uh, <laughs> the palace, the, the king had been ill recently and they didn't want to risk him on a chilly, damp day. So, yeah, first time war numbers. And uh, there was, like most innovations, Gabby, there was there was a bit of opposition to it. People thought it was somehow cheapened the game. Uh, but, you know, after that, everybody saw the advantages of it, really. Uh, although it took a while for them to be introduced fully. But again, you can't imagine watching a game with no numbers, can you? You can't. And finally, you can't imagine watching a game without the advertisements on the shirts. And Derek Dugan was the first. I don't think it was an FA Cup game, but it was Kettering Tyres, wasn't it? And... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I mean, occasionally, and this happened to the Villa in the mid-90s, and I think it happened to West Ham for a season, or maybe not a full season. They don't get a sponsorship deal. Villa didn't at the start of the season in 93-94. Uh, so they come out without any sponsors on. And your first thought is, God, those shirts look so much better yes. without, without a sponsor's name on, don't they? You know, it just wouldn't it really? You know, is it really worth so much money that you couldn't? do with i don't know maybe maybe that's just maybe that is overly romantic but it certainly is romantic and the first fa cup final was on the 16th of march 1872 royal engineers versus the wanderers and the latest the 150th fa cup final isn't going to involve either of them but it could involve manchester city liverpool um Crystal Palace or Chelsea? I'm no great fan of Palace, but it'd be nice to see them get through just to break the, you know, the hegemony of the the the, the super clubs, the modern super clubs, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah. very nice if that could happen. And it would be lovely to go back to a tradition to tradition where some of the smaller clubs, hence Berry, hence Bradford, etc., etc., got to the FA Cup final and won it so if I'm a betting man I might put a few quid on Crystal Palace especially given that Crystal Palace was one of the venues for the FA Cup final as well so as the numbers are up for City the numbers might be aligned and the stars aligned for Crystal Palace this year that's a, that would be a nice bit of romance wasn't it when it wasn't where that club played no it wasn't yes. the final. But, but nevertheless that would be a lovely link wouldn't it Absolutely. Can I thank you, sir, for your time? It's been an absolute pleasure. It's a fantastic book, The Cup, a pictorial celebration. But, guys, it isn't just pictorial. It's words. It's stories as well of the world's greatest football tournament, which is 150 years old uh, this year by Richard Whitehead. Pitch Publishing have published it. It is a fantastic must read must purchase book that would look fantastic 
on anybody's coffee table because it is, Richard, a work of art. And I'm proud to have it in uh, my possession and in my library where it will take pride of place. Gabby, thank you very much indeed. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, sir. And thanks for listening, guys. Ta-ra! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.